Welcome to Golden Gems with Dave Shaw and Bill Hansen. We review each week the career and personal life of one of the great unforgettable artists of the golden days of radio. So please join us on a trip down memory lane as we take a look at today's artist. Then go to our website, www.goldengems.net, where we also look at more of their career and play some of their most unforgettable great hits, which we are unable to share on the podcast. We invite you to join us there also. But for now, sit back and relax as we talk about the life of today's unforgettable artist of the golden days of radio. Welcome here today to our podcast, Golden Gems. Dave and Bill here, and this week we're going to take a look at the life and the career of Mitch Miller. Mitchell William Miller was born to a Jewish family in Rochester, New York, on July 4, 1911. His mother was Hinda Rosenblum Miller, a former seamstress, and his father Abram Kalman Miller, a Russian-Jewish immigrant, wrought iron worker. Mitch had four siblings, two of whom, Leon and Joseph, survived him. Miller took up the oboe at first as a teenager because it was the only instrument available when he went to audition for his junior high school orchestra. After graduating from East High School, he attended the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, where he met and became a lifelong friend of Goddard Lieberson, who became president of the CBS Music Group in 1956. After graduating from Eastman, Miller played with the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra and then moved to New York City, where he was a member of the Alex Wilder Octet, as well as performing with David Manns, Andre Castellanitz, Percy Faith, George Gerswin, and Charlie Parker. He worked with Frank Sinatra on the 1946 recordings of the music of Alec Wilder. He played the oboe in the orchestra for George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess when it opened on Broadway in 1935. What pleased me most, Mitch said in an interview with the New York Times in 1981, was a fellow who came up to me after a concert in Chicago and said, you know, there's nobody in this whole country who hasn't been touched by your music in some way. Mitch said that really made me feel good. Miller played the English horn part in the Largo movement of Dvorak's New World Symphony in a 1947 recording conducted by Leopold Stokowski. Miller gave the American premiere of Richard Strauss' oboe concerto in a 1948 radio broadcast. Strauss had originally assigned rights to the premiere to John DeLancey, who gave him the idea of the concerto while stationed near Strauss's villa in Garmisch. However, since meeting the composer, DeLancey had won a section oboist position with the Philadelphia Orchestra, and as a junior player to the orchestra's principal oboist, Marcel Tabuteau, and he was unable to fill Strauss's wishes. Delancey then gave the rights for the premiere to Miller. Miller disapproved of rock and roll. One of his contemporaries described his denunciation of it as the Gettysburg Address of Music, passed not only on Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly, who became stars on RCA 
and Curl, respectively, but on the Beatles, too, creating a fortune and revenue for rival capital. Previously, Miller had offered Presley a contract, but balked at the amount Presley's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, was asking. However, in 1958, he would sign Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins, two of Presley's contemporaries at Sun Records. In defense of his anti-rock stance, he once told NME in January 1958, rock and roll is musical baby food. It is the worship of mediocrity brought about by a passion for conformity. Miller was the Midas of novelty music, storming the charts with records like Jimmy Boyd's I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus and providing singers with unusual instrumental backing. A harpsichord for Rosemary Clooney, French horns for Guy Mitchell. One of Mitch Miller's earliest hits, Mule Train, was recorded by the muscular voice Frankie Lane with three electric guitars, and Mitch himself using a wood block to simulate the snapping of a whip. Miller was a studio innovator. Along with the guitarist Les Paul and a few others, he helped pioneer overdubbing, the technique by which different tracks are laid over one another to produce a richer sound effect. He employed it memorably with Patti Page, whose close harmony duets with herself became her signature. Miller also achieved what he called a sonic halo on numerous recordings by the use of what came to be called an echo chamber, actually an effect an engineer produced by placing a speaker and a microphone in a tiled restroom. Now, Mitch Miller came up with the idea for his sing-along albums in 1958, drawing on a repertory that ordinary people had sung in churches and parlors for decades. By the time he recorded the first Sing Along with Mitch album, he had already had success with this approach on the singles charts, scoring a number one hit in 1955 with an arrangement of the Yellow Rose of Texas. Mitch Miller and the gang eventually recorded more than 20 long-playing discs, many of which made the top 40. By 1966, they'd sold about 17 million copies. In 1960, his sing-along concept was given a one-time television test on NBC. The response was favorable. That sing-along with Mitch became a mainstay of family television. Running every other week at first, then weekly, from 1961 to 1964, then returning in reruns in the summer of 66. The TV show ranked in the top 20 for the 1961-62 season, and soon children everywhere were parodying Miller's stiff-armed conducting, an all-male chorus joined by a few female singers, most prominently Leslie Uggams. Viewers were encouraged to sing along and instructed to follow the bouncing ball, a large dot that bounced from word to word as the lyrics were superimposed on the screen. The ratings were good, but the critics were mostly unimpressed. Brooks Atkinson, writing in the New York Times, suggested in 1962 that Sing Along with Mitch might best be viewed with the sound turned off. (laughs) 
He's an odd-looking man, his sharp beard, twinkling eyes, wrinkled forehead, and mechanical beat made him look like a little puppet as he appears hopefully into the camera. By now, most of us are more popular with his tonsils than with those of our families. Miller is first-rate, praising the clean tones of the singing, the clarity of the lyrics, the aptness of the tempos, and the variety of the occasional delicacy of the instrumental accompaniment. Miller said in the book, Off the Record, An Oral History of Popular Music, To me, the art of singing a pop song has always been to sing it quietly. The microphone and the amplifier made the popular song what it is, an intimate, one-on-one -on -one experience through electronics. It's not like opera or classical singing. The whole idea is to take a very small thing and make it big. Even at the sing-along's height, many Americans considered them hopelessly corny. That sense only intensified as a younger generation came of age and the 1960s in musical tastes changed. Though initially airing on a one-shot episode of the NBC television show Star Time on May 24, 1960, Sing Along with Mitch went on to become a weekly series in 1961 as the community sing-along program hosted by Mitch Miller and featuring a male chorus, which was basically an extension of his series of Columbia Record albums of the same name. In keeping with the show's title, viewers were presented with lyrics at the bottom of the television screen, and while many insisted there was a bouncing mall to keep time, Miller correctly said this was something that they remember from movie theater screen songs and screen cartoons. Singer Leslie Uggams and pianist Dick Hyman and the singing Quinto sisters were regularly featured on Sing Along with Mitch. One of the singers in Miller's chorale, Bob McGrath, later went on to a long and successful career on the PBS children's show Sesame Street. He was a founding member of the human cast in 1969, and McGrath became its longest-serving cast member until his enforced retirement in 2016. One of the show's trademarks was the final number, a group sing-along with a regular house chorale, among whom would be an uncredited celebrity, not necessarily known for their singing ability, who was dressed like the others. Hidden guests in this closing sing-along included Johnny Carson, Jerry Lewis, George Burns, Shirley Temple, and Milton Berle. As the popularity of the TV show rose, Miller produced and recorded several sing-along with Mitch record albums, complete with tear-out lyric sheets. At his first rehearsal for television, Miller took his position in front of the chorus and began conducting in the usual choirmaster manner arms outstretched with hands gesturing so the singers could see his signals. The TV director stopped him, objecting that Miller's arms were out of the camera's range, <laughs> could not be seen on the TV screen. Miller pulled his arms closer to his body, but the director stopped him once more. It wasn't until Miller's elbows were almost touching his body and his arms extremely restricted that the director was satisfied. Miller dutifully adopted the jerky, confined style of conducting and kept it for the duration of the series. 
The rigid format of Sing Along with Mitch lent itself to parodies. Steve Allen once performed a pointed satire with a comedian made up as Miller and robotically bending his arms Alan Miller while conducting. The sketch spoofed the show's production values, including cameras panning along the vocalists, going out of control and knocking them over, then chasing Alan out of the studio and onto the roof. Ross Bagdasarian produced an animated spoof in the segment of The Alvin Show, with a David Seville character conducting Alvin and the Chipmunks in Miller's herky-jerky style, singing down in the valley while scrambled lyrics appeared on the screen. Stan Freeberg, who had previously recorded Wonderful, Wonderful, a scathing satire of the Lawrence Welk show, presented an equally brutal satire of the show, Sing Along with Freeb, on his February 1962 ABC special, The Chun King Chow Mein Hour. Jonathan and Darlene Edwards, Paul Weston and Joe Stafford produced an entire album of sing-along in the Miller style, but deliberately off-key, which supposedly greatly angered him. That must have been amazing. On the cartoon series The Flintstones, Fred and Barney appeared on the Hum Along with Herman show for people who do not know the words. Another satire of Miller's show. Big Top Records in 1963 released a record by the Delwoods and under the ages of Mad titled Fink Along with Mad. Well, at least they all had a lot of fun with Mitch and he didn't seem to mind that. By the time Mitch Miller's television Sing Along with Mitch show left the air, his era of popular music had largely ended with the emergence of rock. He was sympathetic to blues and folk music and had one of the biggest hits in 1951 with Johnny Ray's Cry, a histrionic performance often cited as rock and roll precursor. Miller had also tried to sign Elvis Presley for Columbia before being outbid by RCA but he turned down an opportunity to sign Buddy Holly, and he was outspoken in his dislike of rock and roll in general. It's not music, he was quoted as saying. It's a disease. When Bob Dylan, soon to become one of rock's most influential artists, joined the Columbia roster in 61, it was not Mitch Miller, but another label executive, John Hammond, who signed him. Miller told Audio Magazine in 1985 that his opposition to rock and roll had been based more on principle than on taste. The so-called payola scandal, in which record companies were found to have paid disc jockeys to play the rock and roll records, had dismayed him, he said. He also complained about British-accented youth ripping off black American artists, and because they're white, being accepted by the American audience, although that hardly explained his opposition to rock and roll in the 50s, a decade before the advent of the Beatles and other British bands. His touch was not always sure. When Miller had bagpipes accompany Dinah Shore on the song called Scottish Samba, the result was, in Miller's own words, a dog. Miller's decision to have Johnny Mathis the switch from jazz to lushly romantic ballads launched the singer as a superstar. 
and probably the nadir of Frank Sinatra's recording career, came after Mitch Miller left Mercury and took over pop production at Columbia Records in 1950. Sinatra complained that Mitch Miller had convinced him to record, forced him to record, inferior material like Bim Bam Baby and Tennessee Newsboy, and perhaps, notoriously, Mama Will Bark, a 1951 novelty duet with the television personality Dagmar that had included dogs growling and barking imitation. <laughs> the song, which reached number 21 on the Billboard chart, is often cited as the worst song Sinatra ever recorded. Sinatra is said to have never forgiven Miller for Mama Will Bark. <laughs> and he and Miller argued constantly over the material. Sinatra even sent a telegram to a congressional subcommittee complaining that Mr. Miller had denied him the freedom of selection. Sinatra did sometimes veto Miller's song choices when he refused to record The Roving Kind and My Heart Cries for You. Miller replaced him in the studio with a young singer named Guy Mitchell. Guy Mitchell's version of both these songs became hits and made Guy Mitchell a star. Sinatra, in fact, blamed Miller for the downward spiral of his singing career, and in 1953, he left Columbia for Capitol Records. Miller strongly disagreed with Sinatra's accusations then, and continued to do so decades later. When I came to Columbia, Sinatra was already at the nadir of his career, Miller told the Chicago Tribune in 1987. He'd lost his television show, he'd lost his movie contract, he was chasing after Ava Gardner, and he was behind in his income taxes. In short, his records would not sell. His voice was gone. Interviewed by Time Magazine in 51, Mitch was less than enthusiastic about the kind of gimmickry pop records that had become his specialty. I wouldn't buy that stuff for myself. There's no real artistic satisfaction in this job. I satisfy my musical ego elsewhere. What a bunch of characters. <laughs> Trying to blame his career downward spiral. Yeah, well, anyway, so... Well, in later years, Miller would carry on the sing-along tradition, leading crowds in song and personal appearances. For several years, Miller was featured in a popular series of Christmas festivities in the New Bedford, Massachusetts, leading large crowds singing carols. Miller hosted a 1981 TV reunion of the sing-along gang for NBC, featuring veterans from the original gang, including Bob McGrath. Andy Love, Paul Friesen, Victor Griffin, and Dominique Cortese. Miller also appeared as host of two PBS TV specials, Keep America Singing, 1994, and Voices in Harmony, 1996, featuring champion quartets and choruses of SPEB, SQSA, and Sweet Adelines International. He also appeared conducting regional orchestras and filled in many times as guest conductor of the Boston Pops Orchestra. Just a short bit about of his personal life and uh, his uh, passing away. Miller was married 65 years to the former Francis Alexander, 
who died in the year 2000. They had two daughters, Andrea Miller and Margaret Miller Ruther, a son. Mitchell Miller Jr. or Mike Miller, two grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. Mitch Miller is considered one of the most influential producers in the history of recording. Miller's daughter, Margaret Miller Ruther, said her father died of just old age. He was absolutely himself up until the minute he got sick. He was truly blessed with a long and wonderful life. Miller lived a full 99 lifetime years in Manhattan, born July 4, 1911, who died after a short illness at Lenox Hill Hospital on July 31, 2010, four weeks after his 99th birthday. He was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for recording at 6101 Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. Thanks for joining Dave and Bill today as we featured the life of Mitch Miller. It's enjoyable to, to hear some of the, the things that go on in these people's lives. And we hope that uh, if you haven't had the chance to go to uh, goldengems.net and listen to some of his great music. Dave and Bill thanking you for joining us here on Golden Gems. Thanks for being with us today. We hope you're having as much enjoyment as we are, reliving some of the unforgettable memories of the golden days of radio. To learn more about the career of today's artists and listen to several of their greatest hits, we invite you to go to our website, www.goldengems.net. May we also encourage you to tell your friends about the show. We'd love to have them join us in these little trips down memory lane. And as always, we invite your feedback or comments on goldengemsradio at gmail.com. So until next episode, this is Dave and Bill heading back into the archives to dust off some more unforgettable memories to share with you on Golden Gems. <laughs> <laughs>